The Brookings Institute released their findings from a recent study. It costs $310,605 to raise a child. That number reflects a two-child average middle-income household, and that's quite an investment. They found the two greatest expenses are firstly housing, about 32% of one's income, followed by secondly food at 27% of income. Now the good news is that the economies of scale apply. That means that with each additional child, expenses decline. We might call that the cheaper by the dozen effect, though you don't need 12 children for that to work. The bad news is that does not include college. A Harvard student could pay around $75,000 a year for his tuition. But for those who have made this type of investment, you are all in on that child. Whatever the cost may be, whatever the return might be, whatever the ups, whatever the downs, you hold that investment close and you hold it tight. You are all in. With a tenacious love, you are going all in on that investment, on that child. When this morning's text, our Lord makes an expensive investment. Our Heavenly Father goes all in. He goes all in on His people. It's an investment that you and I might call risky or even unstable and defective. But we also know that God doesn't make mistakes. That in the history of humanity, God has never made one mistake. And this morning, you and I visit the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. It's the Christmas story. And we're going to see three investments that God makes, three commitments he makes in his investment. Now, to be clear, the Christmas story is first and foremost a story about God. It's the unfolding of God's plan for redemption. That God, in the person of Jesus, redeems a fallen humanity. That means, in the second instance... The Christmas story is a story about Jesus. A fully God, he becomes fully man. It's a story of prophetic fulfillment, the birth of a Savior with a whole host of characters. That means, thirdly, the Christmas story is, you guessed it, about Theophilus. That's right, if you're in Luke chapter 1, look back with me at verse 3. Luke wrote this letter to a man named Theophilus. Along with the book of Acts, it appears that Luke wants to persuade Theophilus that the Christian faith is a good faith. These two books together, I believe, Luke is working them around to win Theophilus to Christianity. Now, at this point, some of you are getting a bit agitated. We haven't discovered how you, how we fit into this story yet. We're demanding a place in the story. After all, our parents spent $300,000 on us. (laughs) And I will say that the Christmas story is absolutely for us. We know that it is. 
However, it's not primarily about us. Again, like the rest of Scripture, it's about God. It's about what God has done, about what God is doing, and we know that God has loved us, and he's made an investment in us. It's not because of our inherent worth, but because of God's intrinsic love. That is why he's acted. Well, this loving God is also a revealing God, and he wants us to know how all this happened. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? But the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, the first commitment I want us to see when God makes his investment is the reality of his control, that God controls conditions. God is in sovereign control over his commitment. Now, for the birth of Jesus, we've learned in those first few verses that God chose the time. Gabriel's revelation took place in the sixth month. And for that time stamp, we have to look back two verses earlier, verses 24 and 25, There we learn that Elizabeth is five months pregnant. In verse 36, we learn that she's a relative of Mary. Her baby will be the forerunner of the Messiah, meaning he will go before Jesus to announce him. This man's name will be John the Baptist. At six months pregnant, he's the size of a bell pepper. So here in Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, Mary gets this angelic announcement. Now, secondly, for the birth of Jesus, God sent an angel. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. We might call him the spokesman angel. Throughout the Bible, he's appearing whenever there's a message to deliver to someone. You might be familiar with another angel. The Bible names him Michael. 
He tends to be the, the soldierly or, or military angel, either executing some form of warfare or defending Israel. The Bible might list a third angel. You know him as Satan. He'd be a fallen angel. The Bible label isn't as clear whether he was an angel or not, but it appears that he may have been. Now, we haven't heard from Gabriel in quite some time. He last appeared back in the book of Daniel. That's hundreds of years before this appearance in Luke 1. That's because God had stopped speaking through his prophets. There's that space between Malachi and Matthew. That space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called the silent years when God stopped communicating through his prophets to Israel. Well, Daniel came even before that. And Daniel is found reading the book of Jeremiah. And he discovers that the time for captivity is at an end. Daniel and the nation are in captivity in Babylon. And he realizes the exile is almost over. And he's asking God to forgive his people. And God sends Gabriel. And Gabriel relays a, a, an amazing revelation, a huge message of what is to come. And part of that is the Messiah, that a Messiah will be sent by God. Well, thirdly, for the birth of Jesus, God's in control and God marked the spot. It's a city in Galilee, a city called Nazareth. Well, surely Gabriel's taken a wrong turn. If you know anything about the city of Nazareth, it is no Jerusalem. It's one of those small hamlet cities in the backwoods of Galilee. We might call it the wrong side of the tracks. The Jews knew it as a place of uncleanness. In John chapter 1, Philip and Nathaniel, they're conversing about Jesus and Philip tells him, hey, Philip, we found him of whom the prophets have spoken, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel asks, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's the reputation of this community, yet this is the place where God matured his son. God said that he would do this. Back in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, by the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. God predicted this. Well, for the birth of Jesus, fourthly, God performed a miracle. It's a virgin birth. Some of your Bibles indicate that Mary was engaged or perhaps betrothed. That's her relationship to Joseph, and in this time, to be engaged or betrothed, that's as good or as equal to marriage as one might get. Mary and Joseph were considered husband and wife by any account. In fact, Matthew in his gospel labels Joseph her husband at this time. After a one-year betrothal period, the, the couple would be married. They would celebrate seven days for a wedding feast. And they would then live as husband and wife. Well, Mary was, was very young at this time. Using modern terminology, we might call her lower class. 
She would carry another prediction by Isaiah. A virgin will be with a child, and she will call him Emmanuel. Luke underscores this miraculous aspect. Two times in verse 27, notice he calls her a virgin. It's only by a miracle that a baby would come. Well, fifthly, for this birth of Jesus, God named the family. He named them Joseph, a descendant of David. That means that the Messiah was to be in the line of Israel's greatest king, King David. But interestingly, Joseph was not a king. He was not a celebrity, but he was a carpenter. God alone ordained this unknown young couple. He chose the time. He sent the angel. He marked the spot. He performed the miracle. God is sovereign over his investment. I feel like the details of these first two verses today, they read like a diversified portfolio. God is in control here, and God is in control there, and then he's in control there and there and there. But let me ask you a question. I, I assume most of us probably already believe this. We would all affirm, indeed, God is sovereign and God is in control. So how do we turn this truth around? How do we use this truth to help others? After all, a biblical truth isn't something that we just take and keep for ourselves. It's something to be shared. See, the sovereignty of God, this is a powerful truth that can be a great help to other people. So how do we communicate? What do we do with this? Well, well, we counsel one another. We use this truth to help each other. I'm thinking in terms of a trial or a suffering or some problem that we may be experiencing. We, we minister to each other. We comfort one another with this truth. How do we do that? Well, I think this truth needs to be applied wisely. We should say that first. What I mean by that is that not everyone needs to hear that God causes all things to work together for good, at least not in times of great suffering or acute pain. That may not be the time to come in with this great brick of a truth. People don't always need a Bible verse. There's some wisdom in how we use this theology. James chapter 1 verse 19 tells us, be quick to hear and slow to speak. But all the while, don't neglect to share this. Don't forget to speak about it. In fact, the Bible does this often. There are dozens of verses about God's sovereignty. There are countless stories, narratives about it. The Psalms counsel our hearts on it. Scripture, we know, is at the very heart of, of a ministry to one another. And to the degree that we can read it and remember it and, and locate passages that we can take it and memorize it, we can use it to help other people in times of need. Well, thirdly, we can testify to God's sovereignty. You can share a story about how God's sovereignty has worked in your life. What a comfort that can be to someone else. We never know how our story could, could work and how it can make an impact in the life of someone else. As we speak about what God has done in our lives, how he was in control through a difficult time. So God controls these conditions. God has made a commitment in his investment and he controls that investment. 
I want you to see, secondly, this morning, that God never defaults. God never defaults. He keeps every promise He's ever made. If we focus on verses 26 and 27 for our first point, I want to look here at verses 28 through 33. Gabriel makes promises. If we go beyond our verses for now into verses 34 to 37, if we total them, there are 11 promises that he makes. The words will or the word shall, these speak to future promises. And we already know that Old Testament promises were fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. We know that through the Gospels, as we read them, Jesus is fulfilling these predictions. We know that there are yet future promises for Christ to fulfill, and we know He will. In these verses, we learn that Mary conceived a boy. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. A chapter over in Luke Chapter 2, verse 7, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Mary named him Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Gabriel's going to tell Joseph the same thing, underscoring this call to name the boy Jesus. There are times where my wife and I go back and forth over the, the, the depth of a name. So, most of our names have some meaning behind them, and we debate whether how true that meaning is for that person. Do their lives really bear out the meaning of that name? Well, for the name Jesus, there's such a weightiness to this that from just about any angle you view it, Jesus fulfilled the meaning of his name. In Hebrew, it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh would be the Hebrew word behind our Old Testament word, Lord. If you're reading the Old Testament, you see Lord in all caps. It's Yahweh in Hebrew. In Aramaic, that's the language of Mary's day. Jesus means Yahweh rescues or Yahweh delivers. Even in English, Jesus becomes Joshua. It carries that same essential meaning. God is deliverance. Jesus did what his name meant. You win that debate when it comes to Jesus. In every way, he received the name that was jam-packed with meaning. And in every way, Jesus fulfilled that meaning. In verses 32 and 33, there's an eternal kingship predicted. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. God promised King David a Messiah, that a Messiah would come from his line, a Messiah would be his descendant, that his kingdom would endure forever. Our verses, 32 and 33, contain three big words that connect this fulfillment to the original promise. Listen to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Your house... And your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now to our text, verse 33. Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob. Jacob's another name for Israel. Verse 33, his kingdom will have no end. 
Verse 32, the Lord God will give Jesus the throne. Just following the the language used and the word selected, you can see the fulfillment of Jesus, the promise made to David. Mary indeed will give birth to a king, and this king will be divine. Jesus is the son of Mary and the son of Joseph and the son of God. Verse 32 is called son of the most high. That type of language makes Jesus equal with God. Now, in Hebrew thinking, to be a son of is to put an equal sign between that individual and the person named. Jesus would possess all his father's qualities. Now, if you think back to last week, in our message last week, we explored a man named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas ran that sham trial in his living room putting Jesus to trial, taking him to task. Are you the son of God? He tried to press the matter because he knew that if Jesus said yes, that would completely upset all of his cronies. They declare him guilty, which is what happened. Because they understood what Jesus meant. When he said, yes, I am the son of, he's saying, I am all that he is. And notice in verse 32 again, Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus is not going to become God's Son. He eternally existed as God's Son. If Jesus became God's Son at this point, it's also at this point that God becomes the Father. Now, to be fair, Christians have different beliefs about this. Some people believe that Jesus became God's son at his birth, at his baptism, at his resurrection, at his exaltation. There's different views on this, but I believe the second person of the Godhead, we know him as Jesus, he eternally existed as the son. For example, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's a title that existed long before the incarnation. Jesus was always the Son, and God gave the Son. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a relationship that existed prior to his birth. So God has kept the promises that he's made to send a Messiah. And he's kept all the promises of what this Messiah would do. You see, God never defaults. God keeps every promise he makes. So how does that impact you? What bearing does this have on on your life? Well, first, the fulfillment of God's promises, it does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. Promises made by God depend on the character of God upon the person of God. There's varying statistics on this, but one source counts 7,487 promises made by God to man in the Bible. Now, to be clear, whenever the Bible records something that God says, that's a promise. God doesn't need to say, I promise, or I vow, 
In fact, it'd be a little weird if, if God did that. I would never leave you or forsake you. I promise. We don't need the I promise tacked on to the end. God doesn't need to do that because God's word is as good as a promise. When he says it, it's a guarantee. It means secondly as well that his fulfillment of promises, this can happen in ways better than we might imagine. Just consider the expectation of Mary's day, of the Jewish people in the days of Mary, their expectation of the Messiah. A Messiah would be sent by God to overthrow these hated Roman invaders. Now, that didn't happen. At least not like the Jews expected. In Jesus, instead... God gave the Jews what they needed to live under the tyranny of Rome. He told them in Jesus how to respond to their enemies, how to handle persecution, what to do with hate. And in Christ, he gave them the power and the grace to obey those commands. So in a way, the Messiah did overthrow Rome, but just not like the Jews expected. Jesus does this. He fulfills the promises of God in ways better than expected. And what he did when he came is he dealt with the bigger problem. He dealt with the sins of people that send them to hell. He addressed the heart, not Rome. Now, Rome's going to be dealt with, but by the way, when God dealt with them, he also dealt with them in a way that even Rome could be saved from their sin. God can answer promises bigger than we imagine. Well, thirdly, the fulfillment of God's promises may involve waiting for 400 years. At least that's as long as it's been since anyone heard from God, since Gabriel wound up in Mary's doorstep. But I can see that it's hard when God is silent. It's hard when there's a wayward child and God doesn't seem to answer. And it's hard when there's a diagnosis that doesn't seem to recede. But I think in almost all instances, waiting is involved for God to, to respond to his promises. In fact, waiting is the very crucible in which God matures you and I. Because waiting is a time of testing. It's to be a time of prayer. It's to be a time of humble dependence. Waiting is a time of spiritual growth. Waiting is a time of maturity. But at the same time, lastly, we don't want to neglect doing. You see, God does not keep his promises so that we can sleep in peace though they do that. The reality of a promise-keeping God ought to get us up and out of bed in the morning. Some days it ought to be a cold shower. You see, the promises of God are like a fire. They warm our hands, and they warm our hearts, and they warm our backsides. God promises to bring every Christian to heaven. And God promises to send every non-Christian to hell. And that should motivate us. 
the promises of God should move us to action. John the Baptist speaks of Jesus. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, these promises should motivate us, and they should move us to share the good news of Jesus with the lost. This is the Jesus who was born to Mary, who lived a sinless life. This is the Jesus who obeyed God's law perfectly. God's law was something we do not obey perfectly. We cannot. We we break God's law. And it's called sin, and it separates us from God. It condemns us to hell. That's a promise that God keeps to those who remain steadfast, unrepentant, unwilling to turn to Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus paid the price. For all who come to God, Believing upon Jesus, turning from their sins, they are forgiven. The Bible says, they who believe upon him obey the Son. They will see life, John said. All who do not receive the wrath of God. These are promises of God. And God keeps every promise he makes. These for us are a comfort and a motivation. Well, lastly, in our text this morning, I want you to see that God stakes everything, that God stakes everything in his investment. In verses 34 to 37, he invests full support, and he does it in unlikely people. In verse 34, Mary has a question. How could all of this be since I am a virgin? This whole notion, we've talked about the virgin birth, this defies the law of nature. It doesn't work logically. It's right up there with square circles. These things do not happen. A virgin cannot give birth. But I want you to look back at verse 18 for a moment. This is the account of of Zacharias and Gabriel. Prior to coming to Mary, Gabriel visited Zacharias. Remember, he's our, our messenger angel. And Zacharias was a priest. He would go on to be the father of John the Baptist. And when Gabriel revealed that Zacharias' wife would have a baby, Zacharias asked, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now notice in verse 20, he became mute as a result of disbelief. He would remain mute up until the time of the birth. Now compare that to Mary's response in verse 34. In some way here, on some level, she did not possess that same level of disbelief. Her question was one of science, but it was also one of trust in God. It doesn't appear that she had any lack of faith or any disbelief, not like Zacharias did. What I love about this passage now, in verse 35, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they go all in on this investment. The Holy Spirit would cause a supernatural birth. Now, the Holy Spirit, we would call him the third person in the Trinity. He is fully God, and we do want to call him a person. He's not a force. He's not a ghost. He's going to overshadow Mary and cause conception. That's his role in this account. The Holy Spirit will cover her. 
The same word is used at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus and three disciples will go atop a mountain and the cloud will form and begin to overshadow them. That's the kind of picture depicted here. Now, of course, the second member of the Trinity is present. Jesus is present. We call this his incarnation. Incarnation is another way of saying become flesh. It's from a Latin word. And Jesus is eternally existing again as the second person in the Trinity. He is fully God. Up before this time, he did not inhabit a human body, not, not, um, not permanently. And I believe since this time, he's always had a human body, although it's been perfected or we would say glorified using the Bible term. But here in the account, where is he? He's in the womb. He's undergoing normal human development. Zygote, embryo, fetus. Jesus is, is, is growing, he's developing as a baby. And God the Father, he's sending his son. The holy child shall be called the son of God. These three members of the Trinity exist as three persons. They coexist. Some deny this idea of the Trinity. They teach that God acts in modes or in different roles throughout time. For example, Jesus would be one way that God acted in time. He acted in one mode as Jesus the Son. It's called modalism, and that's a false teaching. Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they all exist, and they all exist at the same time. And our account today, they're going all in to bring salvation to this fallen world. It helps us sometimes to have an illustration. Gabriel gives Mary one. How do you know, Mary, that this will happen? Verse 36, behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived. Elizabeth was of old age. She was past her prime in life. It'd be surprising to Mary that she's pregnant. Elizabeth was barren. She was unable to have children. But these type of hurdles, God specializes in overcoming. For nothing will be impossible with God, we read. Now, to be clear, that verse isn't about earning a raise or getting your wish list or the Seahawks going to the Super Bowl. That verse is about God's will. Remember, the passage is about God. It's about God's will, working through God's people, according to God's timing. A virgin will conceive, a barren woman will deliver. God has gone all in on unlikely people. He's kept every promise that he's ever made. And he's sovereignly controlled all of these things to bring about his plan. I want to conclude, I want you to hear Mary's response to this. Verse 38. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. That's a big statement, isn't it? That's a big faith. That's a spiritual maturity. That's coming from a young teenager. That's a certain level of trust and submission and humility. We hear that in Mary's response. That's a big risk. Think about it. She lives in a small town. Small town whispers. She's going to walk around with a baby bump. Times were different than they were today. That is not acceptable. 
That's a big God. Again, this is a Christmas story, a Christmas story about God. It's an incredible story of God's investment in a child. And what will become many children sitting in this room even to today. That's a big love. That the Lord would give his own son in making the ultimate investment that you and I would find favor with God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your investment in us. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for sending Jesus to be born and live a life very much like ours. And I pray for us this Christmas season that each of us would have a heart warmed to that reality that all would know on a deep soul level that you love them and that you send Jesus as evidence of that. I pray for your blessing upon us as we depart from here today, that that confidence and that assurance of your love for us, Lord, that it would not be shaken, but that it would be confirmed. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.